Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is the Cork Today replay on C103. This is Cork Today. Cork Today with Patricia Messenger on C103. Cork's greatest hit. And just staying with the weather forecast there for a moment, just to bet Aaron have issued us with a status yellow rain warning for here in Cork, Kerry and in in Waterford. Now that status yellow rain warning is it kicked in uh, this morning was yeah this morning uh, it kicked in just after five but it remains in place until 6am tomorrow morning and that could lead to localised flooding and hazardous driving conditions so please be extremely careful if you are out and about because we are into Christmas week and it's you know, it's a busy week for shopping and people are out and about so please be careful folks as we welcome you along to Wednesday's edition of the programme with Bernie, taking your calls at 1850-333-103. You can text or WhatsApp to 0862-103-103. And just to give you an update on the chocolate Kimberly, I happened when I was teeing up the programme with Ken in the last hour, we were talking about somebody had very kindly dropped into the radio station a box of chocolate Mikado. And I think for most of us in the building, I'd never tasted a chocolate Mikado uh, before. They're absolutely gorgeous. Very rich biscuit now, I must admit. And that got me thinking that I hadn't seen Chocolate Kimberly on sale this year. I used to be a huge fan of Chocolate Kimberly and they used to only come out at Christmas and then they'd disappear and you'd guard them like gold dust. You really didn't want to waste any of your Chocolate Kimberly. Absolutely gorgeous. I was just saying I hadn't seen any and I was wondering then had they been replaced by the Chocolate Mikado because the Chocolate Mikado seemed to be everywhere this year. Well a couple have been on uh, to say Chocolate Mikados. A few people were on to say Centra on Main Street in Mallow. Somebody said I got, that they got a grand box of Kimberly Mikado at Centra in Mallow. Thank you for that. And Super Value in Mitchellstown, they definitely have them as well. Somebody said they saw them on sale at the uh, weekend. And then I thought this was a lovely, lovely idea from Mary in Rathcool. She also is a big fan of the chocolate Kimberly, but they got a box of the, her daughter got a box of the chocolate Mikado. So what they decided to do was they open the Mikado and they open the Kimberly and they come with, there's a, you know, a layer, a top layer and a bottom layer. And you're not allowed, it's the same with all of the chocolates and the sweets. You can't go to the bottom layer until the top layer is done. And I take it that rule applies in most houses and there'll always be somebody who'll get to the second layer because it's when you remove the first one, 
somebody has already been there ahead of you. Again, I think that happens in most houses. But this is what Mary and Rathcool did. Herself and her daughter Liz, they had a box of Kimberley in one house and a box of Mikado in another house. So they took a layer out of each and they swapped it. So both households now have a mixed box with the Mikado and the Kimberley. And I think that's a great idea because they're very heavy, rich biscuits. You really wouldn't eat a lot of them. Ken on breakfast surprised me yesterday when he said he had two of the chocolate Mikado. I, I had one yesterday and found them extremely rich but yummy. Do they have a taste of more from them? Definitely they do. But thank you to a number of people who have pointed out where I can get the box of chocolate at Kimberley. We appreciate that. Yesterday we were talking about blood and blood supplies. And the reason we were talking about it was there was a piece on the news how the Irish Blood Transfusion Service Board so in need of blood that they needed to go to their counterparts in the UK. UK. That doesn't happen very often. That then led to me pointing out to a number of people living in this country from the UK who for many, many, many years were unable to give blood because of the restrictions that were brought in due to mad cow disease. Anyone who'd lived in the UK for a period of time, it was through the 80s and into the 90s, unfortunately were not allowed to donate blood. And that was a great disappointment to a number of people, particularly people who came from the UK who were regular blood donors when they lived in the UK and they wanted to keep up that tradition here and they were turned away and we found out at the time that when the ban was introduced in it was 2004, I was surprised it was that far back, they, the Irish Blood Transfusion Service Board said they lost about 3,000 regular donors because obviously everyone who was donating blood, if they'd lived in England for that period of time during the 80s and 90s were then couldn't give blood anymore but they lifted that restriction back in 2019 now I clearly remember we did an interview on it but of course you do interviews not everybody hears it at the time and I couldn't get over because somebody contacted us yesterday to say they were surprised to hear they were taking blood from England what, how, how and why were they doing that when English people weren't allowed to donate blood here and that's how the discussion broke out started I said no you are allowed to do that you are now allowed to give blood and actually I must have got got a but maybe six or seven texts in from uh, people saying thanks a million for letting us know people who had wanted to give blood but because they thought that restriction was still in place so hopefully because of our little piece that we did yesterday the Irish Blood Transfusion Board now will suddenly have people coming forward to say I am willing and able to uh, give uh, blood and there is now particularly this week a need more than ever if you were a blood donor in the past and maybe you stopped giving blood your life got too busy if you've never donated blood before. Maybe it's something you might consider. We kind of, when we come to the end of the year and the start of the new year, a lot of people, you know, come up with New Year's resolutions and things. We have a tendency for New Year's resolutions it has a tendency to be things that we give up. Maybe for a New Year's resolution it might be things that we take up this year. And wouldn't that be a great New Year's resolution to decide that you're going to become a blood donor in the new year. And there was 400 units of blood are being imported into Ireland this week and it, from the UK and it's down to this shortage of uh, supply. Now it's the second time this year that the Irish Blood Transfusion Service Board has had to import blood from the UK and they import from their NHS blood and transplant unit and obviously we reciprocate if they're in need and this is the time that we have extra blood uh, it's, a, it's a kind of a two-way thing uh, 210 units of rhesus negative 
O negative, A negative and B negative. There was also 200 units of A positive were all collected in Manchester yesterday. The Irish Blood Transfusion Service Board say they're in urgent need of blood donations and they need them now to help see them through Christmas and into the, the new year. And they actually said Storm Barra had a huge uh, effect and they lost around 300 donations in recent weeks on top of what they lost uh, as a result of Storm Barra. The surging COVID-19 cases, that obviously has also affected blood donation appointments and with more blood uh, being issued to hospitals than being collected at the moment. And obviously COVID-19, somebody who would get as somebody who tested positive for COVID-19 obviously couldn't give blood but then if you were even deemed a close contact and you were limiting your restrictions you wouldn't be able to go to the blood donor clinic so you could see how the knock-on effect that it would have. Now they do say since moving to the appointment-based system at the start of the pandemic uh, donors have been incredible in their uh, support so no longer do you just turn up at a blood donor clinic and wait your turn you now must book an appointment Obviously, this has been done for social distancing and to make sure that everybody is safe and that the particular clinic doesn't get swamped uh, with people. But the service say it has been increasingly difficult to keep the blood supply at the level we need to see it through Christmas and the new year. Now, donations of the main rhesus negative blood groups, they are particularly needed. So if you know that you are rhesus negative, particularly if you're O negative, now O negative is considered the universal blood group. So that's the one that's always in demand. And then I was looking at the figures on how many people in this country give blood. There's only 3% of the population are actually blood donors. It's a very, very small uh, number and approximately 9% of the 3% of the population have O negative. The Irish Blood Transfusion Service Board needs to collect 3,000 units of blood every week and that's just to maintain the national blood supply. They say it's been a very tough couple of years for everyone but as hospital demand remains strong right up to Christmas the demand for blood now is greater than ever and therefore they are now urging donors to please make an appointment to give blood. The Irish Blood Transfusion Service Board say if you receive a text message and obviously people who have given blood in the past, regular blood donors, they get text messages. Now it could arrive into your inbox on this Christmas week and you're busy and you've so many other things they're asking you please 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 just to take time out and make time to donate blood and respond to the text book your appointment and I'm assuming by booking appointments people are in and out quicker as well because I remember many years ago I was a regular blood donor and sometimes you'd go and you'd be really lucky you'd get in and you'd be literally in you know you'd get in and you'd be on one of the beds and you'd give the blood which takes uh, about 20 minutes and you'd be back out the door again but sometimes you'd hit them at the wrong time and there'd be a big queue but people willingly waited Um, so but now I imagine with the appointment based system it is much quicker to give blood and it doesn't take up uh, so much of of your time and to donate blood you you visit giveblood.ie and and there they have all the latest information on the COVID-19 measures and how you give uh, blood safely and how the new appointment uh, system Uh, and as I say I was a regular 
a blood donor for many years but then I got diagnosed with hemochromatosis and I was told I couldn't give blood uh, but I have a funny feeling that they've changed the rules around that as well so maybe that's going to be my new New Year's resolution as well I'll go back and uh, start to give blood again because there's a real feel good factor about it as well when you come out you feel that you've actually done something and done something very positive and if you ever have had a family member or a friend who has needed blood I would have over the years known of people for example cancer patients who would have needed blood and the lift that it gives those people in their in their treatment is incredible but it's again it's only one of those things it's when you see the effect of a blood donation that it has on someone you realise the importance it is for all of us to please 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 donate blood. 1850 Lines open. Actually I've just checked and people with uh, hemochromatosis can now donate blood. They changed that rule in 2019 as well. Kind of around the same time that they changed the rule on people from the uh, UK and for many people uh, with hemochromatosis they can donate blood. So there you go. That's my New Year's resolution. Sort it. I'll start to uh, donate blood. And another listener on blood donation says, Hi Patricia, I was a regular blood donor pre the pandemic but my work hours have changed because of the pandemic and the clinic times now don't suit me anymore. Isn't that a real shame? Uh, This sister is wondering would the Irish Blood Transfusion Service Board consider extending hours maybe to morning appointments rather than evening times because evening times doesn't suit everybody. Yeah, which is is a good point. I would suggest maybe you contact them, particularly now listening to them the second time this year having to go to the UK to get blood in order just to make sure that hospitals have enough blood in, in stock I would suggest you send an email off to the Irish Blood Transfusion Service Board with your suggestion and let us know how you get on. 1850 333 103 and Finbar has been on to say uh, happy Christmas happy Christmas to you too Finbar said could you please 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 ask motorists to turn their lights on. It's very dark out uh, this morning I I know it always here in the studio we have uh, lights on that I normally wouldn't have on at half past uh, 10 on a Wednesday morning so it is quite a dull dull day out there on top of the rain and the wet weather as well so please anyone in the car at the moment listening to us can you check to see that your lights are on 1850 333 103 C103 A quarter of a century on from the unsolved killing of French filmmaker Sophie Tuscon de Plantier I'm joined this morning by Irish Independent Southern correspondent Ralph Regal who has been covering this story now since it happened in 1996 and of course wrote a book about the murder called A Dream of Death. Ralph Regal joins me. Good morning to you, Ralph. Good morning, Patricia. And you're welcome to the programme. I suppose set the scene 25 years ago this week and how the murder of this beautiful woman was first discovered. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a terrible story and I think it's a story that very much haunts Ireland in terms of justice denied and justice delayed. Um, Sophie had had fallen in love with Ireland on a visit and had decided to buy a holiday home in West Cork, and she bought this house at Tourmore. Very isolated location, but spectacular views out over the, the hills and, and the coast down there. And she used to travel summertime. Sometimes she would take um, visits with friends and whatever. And this particular week, um, just the week before Christmas in 1996, she had actually planned to visit uh, West Cork with her friend Agnes Thomas, a, a French lady, but unfortunately, that lady had a lot on, and when Sophie invited her to West Cork, she just wasn't able to go. So Sophie decided to take the trip on her own. She flew into Cork Airport, she rented a car, she travelled to West Cork, 
and she spent a couple of days shopping, walking, writing poetry. And she had planned to travel back to France on December the 23rd. And she was spending Christmas in France with her husband and family. And then they were planning to go to Africa in uh, the new year. And what actually happened was that a lady by the name of Shirley Foster was driving, uh, who lived directly um, to the side and slightly above Sophie's house. Uh, She was travelling to do some last-minute Christmas shopping around 10am on the morning of December the 23rd. She drove down. It is an incredibly remote location. It's a kind of a narrow boreen. There's a a very narrow road that comes off the main, say, Skibbereen to Skull Road. And then there's another smaller road comes off that, uh, which leads to this property, very remote. And as she was driving down the hill to take a bend in this boreen, she noticed what she thought was a bundle of old clothes by the side of the road. And unfortunately, when she looked again, she was horrified to realize that it was a human body. And it actually transpired to be the body of Sophie Toscan de Plantier, the 39-year-old mother of one, and as you mentioned, a French film executive. Now, I'm conscious of the time in the day, and I'm also conscious that there might be small ears listening to this at the moment. So I'd be very brief in terms of, essentially, she was beaten to death. Uh, there was more than 50 blows, and it was a particularly horrific and gruesome attack. Um, the Guardi were called, and when they got to the scene, what they believed happened was that Sophie was confronted at her home. They're not quite sure if she was confronted inside her home, but it appears certainly by the door of her home and um, by an intruder. And she, whatever happened, she tried to flee. Tragically, she ran downhill rather than uphill towards the only other people that were living nearby, which was Shirley Foster and Alfie Lyons. So she ran downhill and really she had nowhere to go. She's talk, You're talking a mile or more to reach the main road. And even when you reach the main road, it's quite an isolated spot. So you would have had to go some substantial distance really to raise help. And uh, it appears that her clothing snagged on a barbed wire fence and her killer caught up with her and subjected her to the most horrific um, act of violence. Uh, and she was found dead at the scene. Uh, and she felt safe. Even though it was, it's a very remote area, but she she felt safe there. Yes, she did. She very much described it as her dream home. It's a place where she seemed to have some kind of connection to nature and to the, the pretty wild and rugged landscape down there. Uh, she loved reading poetry. She loved hill walking, going to particularly wild places, um, you know, near, near uh, say, where, where the coast would come in, hills, whatever like that. And... She never felt uh, intimidated or frightened by it. Now, it's interesting because a cousin of hers had come over to visit the house and the cousin just felt, some, just wasn't happy or relaxed at the location and felt the house was very isolated, that there was something about being so far from anyone else. Um, and the cousin never returned to the property. But for Sophie, it was a very happy place. It's where she came to think to relax. Now, she was married to a man called Daniel Toscan de Plantier, who was several years her senior, but he was a very, very influential figure within the French film industry. Um, he was the chairman of Unifrance, which essentially was their version of the French film board. And France is particularly proud of their film industry, and it has a lot of connections to corporate sponsorships and politics. So so Daniel would count amongst his friends, say, the, the late former French president, Jacques Chirac. And he also maintained, because of his film industry commitments, he maintained quite 
hectic social schedule, so attending things like the Cannes Film Festival, the Deauville Film Festival, various film and arts events in Paris. And I think West Cork for Sophie was an escape from that type of life. She went to these events, but I think she was much more a private person who, who reveled in the simplicity of nature. And I think that's what that, that was the attraction that Tourmore held for her. And were the early mistakes that were made, have they played a role in the fact that the murder has never been solved? I think they have. I think they've been quite significant. Um, There's a combination of factors. I I don't think it's fair to pin everything on some of the investigative issues that that, that happened with the Gardaí. I think there was an amount of bad luck um, that that hampered the investigation as well. Uh, Gardaí, I think in the early days, believed that forensic evidence was going to play a very, very significant role in this. And ultimately, they were frustrated in that regard. Uh, material of DNA found under Sophie's fingernails turned out to be her own. Uh, hair fibres that were found in her clenched fist, people thought that they were originally from the killer. It actually turned out to be Sophie's own hair. Fingerprints, blood samples, all of those things, they didn't get the critical breakthrough that they required. Even more I mean, remember, this is 1996, so it's the era well before um, the proliferation of CCTV security cameras that we have today. Uh, There were no eyewitnesses to the crime itself. Uh, No one heard anything specific in the area at that time. Um, Now, again, there was an eyewitness of someone walking at Kailfada Bridge, but that became incredibly controversial later on in terms of the witness recanting their statements and as to the identification of who that individual precisely was. And certainly one of the early issues was the fact that the the pathologist didn't get to the scene until Christmas Eve, the morning of Christmas Eve, which meant that, that was Dr. John Harbison who passed away very sadly a, a year ago. It meant that Sophie's body was actually left outdoors for two nights now, so a body temperature reading couldn't be taken to give any type of accurate indication of roughly when the fatal assault occurred. And ever since then, it has really become the focus of armchair sleuths, whodunit theories, and some quite bizarre claims, which I'm sure have been very upsetting for the family because mm-hmm. they have maintained a quite incredible campaign for justice and from the very beginning uh, Daniel Duplantier was the first he died in February of uh, 2003 and the mantle for running the campaign for justice then after that was taken up by Georges and Marguerite Dunio who would be Sophie's parents her brother Bertrand her uncle Jean-Pierre Gazo and multiple friends until the campaign for justice is actually now run by her son, uh, Pierre-Louis Baudet-Vigno. And Pierre-Louis was just 15 years old when his mother was killed. And as he has often said, his childhood ended that day, mm. December the 23rd, 1996. And, when and, his and, and, he's, yeah, and he's an only child as well. It's just... Uh, it's, and, and the family, we cannot but think of the family this week. Ralph. No, I think you have to. I think the focus very much has to be on Sophie and the focus has to be on them because really what they've gone through, I mean, nightmare is too small a word to describe what they've gone through over the last 25 years, um, constantly waiting for justice, uh, you know, patiently waiting for someone to do the right thing and provide the piece of information that the guardian need to, to try and track the killer, bring them to justice. Um, and it has been a very painful road for them. I mean, 
I'm fortunate enough to have kind of gotten to know them a couple of times. I don't pretend that I know them very well, but I have met them at various press events and memorials and stuff like that over the years. And particularly Sophie's parents, George and Marguerite, I mean, they really are very kind, very decent people um, who don't deserve what they've been put through over the last Mm. quarter of a century. And I think it's also worth noting that, I mean, despite all that has happened here in Ireland, some of it, in actual fact, quite embarrassing, uh, over the way what has happened with the investigation and, and, and the handling of the whole thing. But for them, they have never come out and criticised Ireland. They've never come out and attacked the country or, or been particularly you know, hard-hitting in terms of the fact that it might have been justified on certain occasions, but they've never done that. They've always spoke kindly and fairly about Ireland and just kept repeating their plea that someone out there must have information which could identify the person that is responsible for this and would they please come forward and help the Gardaí. And at what point did the finger of suspicion start to point to Ian Bailey? Uh, I suppose really it was just a couple of days after Christmas in, in 1996. Now, Ian Bailey, for, for listeners who, who, who might not be familiar with him, he, Ian Bailey was born in Manchester. He was raised in Gloucester. He's a, a freelance journalist who would have worked in Cheltenham and Gloucester over the years. And he moved to Ireland in 1991, essentially to start a new life. I think he got very disillusioned with the whole cut and thrust of the freelance world in the UK. And he came to Ireland. He loved music. He loved poetry. I think he very much felt an empathetic tie to the kind of the cultural aspects of Ireland. He lived in Waterford for a bit, then he went to Wicklow, and then he eventually settled in in West Cork. And about that time, he was starting to try and revive his journalistic career, and he had been in contact with various newspapers um, to see would they take some of his work. And what had happened was, because he was living in the close vicinity, he said he received a phone call from um, a, a reporter with the then Cork Examiner asking him had he heard about the discovery of a body. And this would have been about lunchtime on the 23rd. And trying to revive his career, he decided that he would go to this, try and find the scene, go to the scene, and then report on whatever he found. Now, in the days after that, um, Gardy would have had various dealings with anyone was in the general vicinity that would have asked them, did they see anything? Did they come across anything? Did they hear anything suspicious or whatever? And a couple of Gardaí noticed that Ian Bailey had scratches and cuts to his hands, I think his upper arms and face. And he explained that he had received these because he was killing turkeys um, in preparation for, for Christmas and that he had also cut the top off uh, a fir tree so that it could be used as a Christmas decoration. Uh, but it, it, it very much made Gardaí suspicious and then, it, as it transpired, Ian Bailey was then arrested twice. He was arrested in, I think it was February of 1997 and January of 1998. Now, he was questioned uh, for several hours, but he was released without charge on both occasions. And how he came into the public domain, normally what happens in these cases, Patricia, is that a person's never identified. If someone is arrested and questioned, really what happens is they're not identified until it becomes clear that there's going to be a charge. But what happened in this particular case was a tabloid newspaper ran Ian Bailey's photograph and his name the day after he was released from from Garda custody the first time. And a couple of days later, Ian Bailey gave brief interviews or gave a couple of quotes to other tabloid newspapers protesting his innocence. And really the focus on him in terms of the public sphere increased because he then gave an interview to Pat Kenny on RTE where he 
protested his innocence, but at one point kind of said, well, look, maybe it was fair or I can understand how the Gardaí might consider me as a suspect. Now, Mr. Bailey has always been quite upset that that interview was interpreted by various elements of the media of him admitting that he was the chief suspect. He's consistently said that he he said no such thing, but within the public mind, he became the kind of main suspect after that. And of course, it was very much copper fastened then by various things that happened over the years that kept him in the public eye. In 2003, December 2003, <laughs> I think we're all getting old at this stage because I remember talking about the, the libel case with you on the air, Patricia, yeah. back in December 2003. But in in that month, um, 18 years ago, uh, Ian Bailey took libel actions against eight English and Irish newspapers for defamation over their coverage of the, the whole Sophie Doskin and the investigation and he claimed that he'd been he'd been made a pariah in West Cork and that he'd been effectively ostracised within the community by being wrongly associated with this crime. Uh, he effectively lost uh, the bulk of those actions. I think he won in two cases and, and lost the others. The evidence in that was quite sensational. He then appealed that libel action to the High Court he then took a high court action against the state for wrongful arrest in 2014 and 2015. That became one of the longest running cases um, in legal history. And it was incredibly high profile because any of the elements of the case that we didn't already know about because of the libel action, we suddenly found out about mm. because of the high court action over wrongful arrest. As if that wasn't enough, we then ended up with a complaint to the Garda Siakona Ombudsman Commission that led to a major investigation in terms of the handling of the investigation in West Cork. And then in tandem with all of that, once the French realised that there wasn't going to be a prosecution here in Ireland, and that was made pretty much clear between 2000 and 2004, when the DPP, after studying the Garda file on several occasions, said that they, they didn't see enough evidence to warrant any further action, the French launched their own investigation. And under Napoleonic law, the French are able to do that because it doesn't matter in France where the crime happened or where, where an incident happened. What matters is that there was a French person, somewhere, a French citizen, somehow involved. So for almost a decade, an investigation was run by a Paris-based magistrate called Patrick Gachon. That involved French police visiting West Cork. That involved the re-examination of Sophie's body, a battery of new forensic tests. And ultimately, the Gachon report was submitted to the courts in France, and they decided that a prosecution was warranted. And in May 2019, during a one-week trial in Paris, Ian Bailey was convicted in absentia by a Paris court of the murder of Sophie Toscan de Flantier and was sentenced to 25 years. Uh, yeah, and so we know there's been so there's been extradition warrants, but they've never... But the other point that we need to point out, Ian Bailey was never charged in this country. No, Ian Bailey was arrested twice. He was released without charge on both occasions and has never been charged in this country and has consistently protested his innocence. In fact, he's gone further and said that he believes that there was a sinister campaign waged to try and frame him or stitch him up for the crime. And he's also said on multiple occasions that he believes there are people out there who know the identity of the true killer, but are happy to sit in silence and allow him to be, in his own words, to be bonfired. And then bringing us up to to today, there's a new guard investigation underway. Yeah, there is. Essentially, the, the, the roots of that lie earlier this year, Patricia, in Ian Bailey wrote to the Garda Commissioner, Drew Harris. He wrote to the Minister for Justice and the Taoiseach asking for a cold case review 
because he believes a cold case review would finally exonerate him and, and, and prove his point that he had nothing to do with this. Now, I mean, I've, I've written several stories on this over the last couple of months, and the Garda position is, first of all, they denied that there was a cold case review underway. Um, what has confir- been confirmed, we had the story, I think, two weeks ago in the Irish Independent, is that a number of very senior detectives um, are reviewing potentially new evidence that has come to light since last summer, and particularly since two high-profile documentaries on the crime have been broadcast, one by Sky and the other by Netflix. And Gardy have received a number of different contacts uh, with allegations and claims and whatever. So these senior detectives are sifting through that, and they will then submit a report back to uh, Commissioner Harris. And the Garda position is that it is a live and active investigation at the moment. But I think if those veteran detectives who are, you know, they've gone through some of Ireland's most high-profile murder probes over the years, if they indicate to the commissioner that there's likely to be significant developments, there won't be a cold case probe. If they say that they don't believe that the evidence that has been submitted will probably change things very much, well, I think, then I think what's going to happen is you will have a cold case review in 2002, which will involve every piece of evidence from the original Garda investigation right up until today being re-examined. Wow. You'll have the poten- potential of new forensic tests, new um, a re-examination of every single piece of potential evidence that's in the case and of to course, see where it leads. Forensic science has come on so much since uh, 1996. And finally, Ralph, do, do you think we'll ever find out what happened on that night? Um, if I'm honest, Patricia, I would hope and pray for the family that we do. Yeah. Because no family should have to go through what they have gone through. I mean, it really has been, you know, a torture that they just can't escape from. I mean, we, we use this word closure very lightly. But, I mean, imagine that family 25 years on, and, and they've not been allowed closure. It's constantly being dredged up. It's constantly in headlines. There's constantly things happening with the case that remind them of what happened. So part of me would hope and pray that something develops for them but unfortunately I think the realistic part of me looks at it and think that we're 25 years down the road and now there has been a lot of reports most of them pretty salacious and unfounded over recent times alleging dramatic new developments in the case without any evidence to support it everything that I've heard is that there hasn't been the type of breakthrough yet that Gardaí are hoping for that's not to say that it won't happen but I think, unfortunately, you have to look at it realistically and say, 25 years down the road, a lot of the original witnesses have now, are now dead. Virtually every member of the original Garda investigation team has retired. A number of those are also passed away. And it is very difficult to see that they would get the type of breakthrough that they need to allow some type of of court or prosecutorial development at the moment. Somebody somewhere who knows something uh, steps forward. Uh, Listen, it's hard to believe 25 years on that we're still uh, discussing this case but we remember uh, very much so if we've just gone to Plantia this weekend as you've uh, uh, so eloquently uh, spoken about her family as well. Listen Ralph as always uh, thank you for that. Happy Christmas to you. My pleasure. Many happy returns. And uh, we'll chat again in the new year. Thanks for that. Bye bye. That is uh, Southern uh, correspondent for the Irish Independent uh, Ralph Regal an author of a fantastic book 
on the Sophie Tuscondi Plantier case called A Dream of Death. The last time mentioned that there is a socially distant vigil tonight, seven o'clock outside the Ona Cara Centre in uh, Middleton. And they're asking people to please, please come along. It's to show solidarity with the Ona Cara Centre residents. We know that the centre, the plan from the HSE is to close it, but also for other service users in uh, East Cork who need long stay or respite mental health uh, placements. So if you're in the Middleton area tonight, 7pm socially distant uh, vigil outside the Ona Cara uh, Centre. Uh, good luck to everybody involved uh, there. And Marie in Middleton is on with a word of warning about a scam call that she has received. This is a new one and it's purporting to come from uh, Aircom. So she picked up the phone, let this guy speak for a while, you know, until she started to realise, ah, it's a bit of a scam. And then she, yeah, said to her, this is a scam. So she told him, sorry, I don't have a, a an account with Aircom. I'm not an Aircom customer. He said, according to their records, she was an Aircom uh, customer. And Maria Middleton said, I'm not an Aircom customer. And he told her, her memory must be going. God almighty, we've got these scam artists trying to scam money out of you. And now they're deciding to insult people as well when you don't agree uh, with them. Nothing wrong with your memory, Marie. But certainly that is uh, a new one on me. Still getting people saying the Chocolate Kimberley are available. It seems to be Super Value and Centra seem to be the main places that have them or had them, even though somebody said Little have them as well. But then somebody says, haven't seen any chocolate coconut creams this year. Are they on the missing list? Has anybody seen chocolate coconut creams. James in Cloyne said he's already purchased his box of chocolate Kimberly biscuits. He's put a mouse trap on the top <laughs> so that nobody goes near them before uh, Christmas. <laughs> Good luck with that, uh, James. Uh, thanks a million. OK, now also um, was Mike in West Cork says, Patricia, is this a double week uh, for those people on disability allowance? It is social welfare uh, payments now, when we say a double week, you get your payment and then you get an advance payment for the following week. So it means if you're going along to the post office or if your money is paid in to the uh, bank, you will receive this week's payment and the advance payment for next week, which means you won't be picking up a payment next week. But yes, uh, it is uh, today. It is it is this week. It started on uh, Monday. And people who normally either get it into their account or go to their post offices on Thursdays, uh, they can, or, oh, sorry, who normally go on a Friday. This would affect a lot of, certainly pensioners normally go out on a Friday to pick up their pension or the money goes into their account on a uh, Friday. Just just to let those people know that if it's payment into your bank, the payment will go in tomorrow, Thursday. But you can also collect at the post office if you normally pick up a payment on Friday. Friday, it being Christmas Eve, they don't want the post office is swamped, I suppose, on Christmas Eve. So your payment will be there for collection tomorrow, Thursday, for people who normally get payment of social welfare on uh, Friday. But yes, it is a double week because it's an advance payment for next uh, week. Um this is Michael in Castletown Bear says great to hear Ralph Regal on your programme in the last hour he's so thorough and he's a pleasure to listen to wish him a happy Christmas says Michael he's unfortunately got off the phone when your text uh, came in he may be listening if he is happy Christmas to you Ralph from Michael in Castletown Bear but I agree he is an absolute pleasure uh, to listen to he's one of those he's a great great gift he's a brilliant print journalist and he's written some fantastic books but not every print journalist can also do the spoken word and Ralph is one of those ones that truly 
truly has that uh, gift that when you ask him to come on and report on something that he's written about, he's, he's so, so articulate. So I agree with you, Michael. He is a real pleasure to uh, listen to and indeed happy Christmas to you as well. On blood donations, they're still getting a number of uh, comments in on blood donations. Averlyn Douglas says, Patricia, I recently returned to donating blood and I have, uh, like myself, hemochromatosis, always a great welcome in the clinic. Wonderful updates by text on where your blood has been used. Oh, that's new. That wasn't when I was given blood. I didn't. That's what a fantastic thing to do. Highly recommend, says Avril in Douglas. Well, as I say, Avril, I'll definitely be going back. It'll be my New Year's resolution to start going back and donating blood. And on blood donations, there was a call in from Bridie in West Cork to say, Patricia, during her last day in hospital, she ended up needing three blood transfusions. Some people may never, hopefully you'll go through life and you'll never need a blood transfusion, but it's only when you need it, you really need it and you realise how important it is that people donate uh, blood. Hopefully you're keeping well and back to full health. Bridie, thank you for your call. And hi Patricia, this is from Anne saying, I used to give, I used to be a blood donor years ago, but I was told recently by a doctor that they don't take blood from people 70 years of age and over, even though my blood is perfect. Well, there's been a change on that and I don't know whether you'll fall into the category or not. Blood donors, you've got to be over 18 and under the age of uh, 65. Now, people aged over 65 and up to 70 have been able to donate blood and have been given blood. That's been going on uh, for the past uh, 10 years. But it was up to your 70th birthday. But they've now changed the criteria. And for people over the age of 70, they are eligible to return to donating blood. And this, I take it, has got a lot to do with they are so in demand for blood. So now, people over the age of 70, if they've been fully vaccinated, seven days past their second dose, they must have given blood within the last two years. So this will affect people who turned 70 in the last two years. They were regular blood donors. And then because of their age, they had to stop. And for many people like Anne, didn't want to stop. But because they hit their 70th birthday, they had to stop. They're, those are the people that they're calling back to say you can now give blood. Now, there is an addendum to this. They have to have an, an updated letter from their doctor stating that they are fit to donate and they need to bring that letter with them every time they uh, donate and obviously they need to meet all of the other blood donation criteria. So for people in the last two years who reached the age of 70 to discover they could no longer donate the Irish Blood Transfusion Service is saying, "Come on back to us, uh, please. Uh, we will take on board your. You will t- will take your donations now." And Paula has been on. This is to do with keeping everybody safe over Christmas, with particularly with the Omicron variant. And Paula has been on to say they, she has ten people coming to her home on Christmas Day, so they've all taken the decision that they're going to do an antigen test on Christmas morning to make sure that everybody is okay, and then they're going to do an antigen test the following day because obviously. It's the three other households coming to Paula's house, but there will be 10 in total. So Paula was the one assigned with, will you go get the antigen tests for everybody? So she went out yesterday to purchase the antigen tests and she's bought 22 for uh, everybody. And she said she shopped around and the cheapest she could find them at was at three euro each. So it cost her yesterday in total 60 euro for the 20 antigen tests. She thought that was a tad on the expensive side. And she's wondering, do others agree that the antigen tests are simply too too expensive and should they actually be free because we know we're being told that if you are going to gather and you are going to be with people this Christmas the safest way is to make sure do your anti 
antigen test. And obviously, if your antigen test comes up as positive, you then need to go and book a PCR test. But the whole thing is, is you don't go wherever you are planning on going if you have a positive antigen test. But we need you need to buy your own antigen tests. Now, at three euro, that probably is the two ninety nine mark. Seems to be the cheapest that they are on sale. I've seen them as high as six euro a test. And I was just thinking, Paula, if you had paid six euro a test yesterday, it's 120 euro. You would have been forking out on your antigen test just to keep make sure that everybody is safe over Christmas. Mary Lou MacDonald actually yesterday has called on the government. She's very much with you on this, Paula, and feels that free antigen tests should be given to everyone. And she has come up with a way of doing it. She says that they could be even dispensed through the uh, schools. Mary Lou has suggested that schools could be used also to vaccinate younger age groups in the new year. She said instead of, at the moment they're planning, I think I'm bringing the children into the vaccination centres or maybe are in some GP surgeries, but she said surely it would be easier to do it through the schools. I don't know how parents uh, would feel about that. But on the antigen tests, she's making the point that even at that, around the three euro mark, she says they still remain very expensive for some people. And she said they should be freely available to the public. And she said if they were freely available, she reckons there would be greater use of the test. She said she's conscious of the cost, even at the reduced prices in some of the shops. And she says if you've got a larger family, or in Paula's case, the the 10 people all gathering around the Christmas uh, table, and, you know, it can work out very expensive. She said, what about families that are on small incomes, don't have a lot of money? They're not going to have the cash available to buy the antigen tests. And then she pointed to up the road in Northern Ireland, children get a certain number of antigen tests free at school and they need to do them every week. I think they do them every second day or something. I think it's three tests a week. The children at school uh, is what they do in Northern Ireland and it's the same in the UK. Uh, She's called on the government to centrally procure antigen tests. And of course, if they went and centrally procured them, they would be getting them, I would assume, cheaper than what, say, the shops are buying them in at. So she said they need to centrally secure, purchase them, then hand them out free of charge to the public. She accepts it would be a cost, but she said at the end of the day, COVID has been an extremely expensive public health measure. There had been talk for quite some time, particularly by our Health Minister Stephen Donnelly. He'd initially indicated, well I don't think he ever went down the route of saying I'm going to give out free antigen tests, but he certainly did talk around introducing a subsidy to make the antigen tests more affordable. But of course that plan went out the window and it was scrapped because the retailers started to reduce the price of the kits themselves. Now, how long the retailers will keep the price of the kits low, I don't know. And will they start to go back up again? And if they start to go back up again, then you're going to have the problem that they'll even be more expensive. But I think, you know, Mary Lou is right and Paula, our listener, is right. There are families on low incomes who simply will not be able to afford to do an antigen test on everyone who's going to be gathering around the uh, Christmas table. I mean, I watched last night the Capuchin Fathers in Dublin. Normally they give out hampers, but this year, because of COVID and all of that, they were giving out vouchers. And it was, I think they were for Dunn stores, they were 50 euro vouchers. And there was huge queue of people in Dublin turning up for those vouchers and they interviewed some of the people as they were walking away you know, and there was one gentleman was saying that this 50 euro will mean you know he can go into Dunn's and he can buy the food and that will keep him going and then the money he would have spent on the food that 50 euro he'll put that towards his uh, electricity bill and that's how a lot of people on low incomes they budget you know it's almost borrowing from Peter uh, to pay Paul and you think 
in a situation like that. I mean, I was thinking that man came into my head when I saw Paula with her 60 euro for her antigen tests yesterday. I mean, if he was having a group of people uh, around, there's, you know, there's no way that they could afford to fork out 60 euro on antigen tests when he needs the 50 euro to put some food on the table so that he can have the money to pay for his electricity uh, bill. So I don't know even at the lower prices that antigen tests are now being sold at are they actually, the fact that there's a cost involved, are they actually putting people off uh, buying them? I know that when Stephen Donnelly and the Department of Health were looking at reducing and doing some kind of a subsidy on antigen tests, and obviously they must have looked at some stage of giving them out, out, to for, out for free. I know they looked to the UK because the UK very early on in, in the pandemic and very early on when they saw that antigen tests had a role to play, they started giving them out f- uh, for free. But I've seen on reports coming out of England, the very fact that you give something for free, people started stockpiling them. There's people in England who literally have cupboard fulls of antigen tests because people were going in and just every time that they, you know, passed a chemist or whoever was giving them out, they were taking a bunch of them and bringing them home. And that's the danger when you offer something for free. The the very nature that it's free, whatever it is in the psyche of some people, the fact the word free, people want to take all the more. So I don't know if going down the free route is the way to do it. Maybe they could allocate so many to a household. They could look at other ways of uh, doing it. But, you know, I do think the cost factor is certainly going to stop people using them and we very much now see that antigen tests have a role to play and it just gives you a little bit of peace of mind if you're going somewhere and particularly if you're going somewhere where you know that there's maybe going to be a vulnerable uh, adult and you you know the last thing anybody wants to do this Christmas is to sit around a kitchen table and then afterwards to discover that you brought COVID in with you unknowingly brought COVID in with you so at least there's some peace of mind if you've done an antigen test to know that you are okay. 1850 Your thoughts welcomed. Bernie's taking your calls. You can text her WhatsApp to 0862 103 103. C103 Jobs. Irish yogurts there in Connacilty. They have vacancies for a dispatch manager and a dispatch supervisor. They're also looking for a health and safety manager. CVs, please, to r.scully at irish slash yogurts.ie. JMC Parts, they've got vacancies for Senior Territory Sales Manager, Junior Sales Customer Research and Contract Warehouse Staff. Please send your CV and your cover letter to Barry Galvin and the email address is bgalvin at jmcparts.com. Construction workers wanted to work in the Cove area and early years educators wanted for ABC Childcare. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. They're based in Douglas. Email newapplications001 at gmail.com. You'll find all the details and more job opportunities by going online now. Just go to c103.ie forward slash jobs for more. This is C103. This is the Court Today replay on C103. C103. And as we head into the final few days before Christmas, many people wondering what's the weather going to be like and there are those who dream of a white Christmas. Alan O'Reilly of Carla Weather uh, joins me with his predictions. Uh, good morning to you, Alan. Good morning, Patricia. Alan, we've, we, we're under a status yellow rain warning at the moment that's remaining in place until I think it's the early hours of uh, tomorrow morning. Uh, it's not very festive at the moment. No, the rain has really made a return with a bit of a bang, really. Very heavy rain, um, rather breezy as well. So not a particularly uh, nice day, unfortunately. We had we had a nice dry spell, but we have seen quite a bit of rain overnight and still continuing. Um, there was some very heavy rain, actually, between 4, four a.m. and 6 a.m. in Cork. There was uh, 10 millimetres in an hour. So uh, anyone that was up early would have got a good good soaking and it was actually nearly another five mil in the following hours so 15 mil in three hours in a lot of rain morning yeah that's a lot that's of rain. a lot a lot of rain are are we completely ruling out a white christmas it does look like unfortunately that's pretty much gone now at this stage um we have cold weather to the north that's going to try and come down but there's a low system coming in from the south which looks likely to bring rain um, and some milder temperatures for Christmas Day now, unfortunately. The rain doesn't look too heavy, but it's still a little bit subject to change, even this far out, um, where where it will hit. But at the moment, it's looking like 9 or 10 degrees for uh, the south of the country. Oh, so, so, and my, so that's mild for this time of year, ish? It, it would be, yeah. It'd be, it'd be on the mild side. Anything double digits or close to double digits would be, would be quite mild. The weather models had been showing cold weather coming down since Stevens' day, but that now looks like it might just hold off even to the north as well. So while parts of Scotland might get a white Christmas, um, the rest of us are looking much, much milder. How common are white Christmases here in Ireland? Um, well, on average, once every six years. In Dublin, that's Dublin Airport. Um, but we haven't seen one since 2010. So it's going to be 11 years now. So, um, yeah, they're not, not that often. And 2010, by God, was a white Christmas. It was. It was, it was frozen. <laughs> the yeah. whole country was covered in snow and the temperatures were extremely low. I remember some rivers were even frozen over. Um, so, yeah, that was, a, that was a real white Christmas. We haven't seen anything like that since, really. Okay, and not, and certainly not, and, and and we're not going to get it uh, this year. We last spoke to you on the day of uh, Storm Barra. Are those type of weather events, uh, Alan? Are they getting more common? Um, not really. They, they, they can be a little bit more extreme, but no, we do we do see kind of a large number of storms in a quiet season, and and you know there's 
there's not really a marked increase in the number of storms. The intensity of them and the amount of rainfall um, and things like that is certainly increasing because of climate change. But um, indications of more storms is not, not really in recent years. And actually, the last time you were gone off the line when somebody sent in a question saying, would you ask Alan, uh, when and why did we start naming storms? That they were making the point that they'd never remember storms being n- named in their childhood. Yeah, no. The first storm that everyone kind of thinks of his name was Storm Darwin. But that, was, funnily enough, was only because it happened on Darwin Day. Um, <laughs> and it was commonly called that. But um, they didn't actually really start naming until... Um, I think it was 2015, and the reason they name they named them is to try and heighten um, public awareness that if you know there's something coming, so like Storm Barra, people are able to kind of reference it, and it makes it kind of easier to for the media to explain the weather event and stuff. So that's that's why the star name. It's not that we didn't have bad weather before; <laughs> <laughs> we certainly did. And it's it's our Met Office and the UK Met Office and one other Met Office, isn't it? They get together and, and the Dutch, yeah, the Dutch. Yeah. What, yeah. Why the Dutch? Um, interesting question. I'm not really sure. They 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 work together on on the storm naming system. Um, it could be due to the track of some storms that we see heading to the south of uh, Ireland and mainly the south of UK do end up hen- hitting them. So. You know, they 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 commonly try and keep the same name. So, like for example, when we had um, Storm Emma, um, some of those storms don't aren't aren't named by the UK or the Irish office. They're named by the Spanish or Portuguese, and then rather than give the same storm another name, they they keep the same name. So it makes sense for more of them to kind of work together that are that are close together that are impacted by the same storms. And what overall, for as we come to the end of the year, what kind of we haven't had any have we any really exceptional weather this year? Um, well, we we had a very um, wet May, so we had a very dry April, um, and then um, we had twice the normal rainfall in May and actually in Cork. Um, so that was that was a very wet period. Um, it's been mild as well, um, yeah. especially October. Um, and September, November, but especially October. Um, and rainfall-wise, November uh, was exceptionally dry. And obviously we had a good start to December as well, and we, we haven't seen that much rain in the last 10 days, really. So we've, we've been lucky with the winter so far in terms of rainfall and flooding, thankfully, um, has been generally not not an issue. Um, but yeah, it was, it was uh, very wet as well, if you remember, at the start of the year. February um, also had twice the normal rainfall for Cork. Um, Cork Airport had 235 millimetres of rain in February, where the average is under 100. So, um, yeah, it's easy to to forget the the wet spells. Yeah, it's easy to. But, and I suppose the fact that we have had a reasonably mild winter so far, there's a positive out of that for people with the rising fuel costs. People are not using not having to have the heating on as much or the fires lit as much. Yeah, absolutely. We've been very lucky. Um, it really has been very mild um, so far for the winter and the end of autumn. So we've, we've escaped very well. Um, the weather models, as I say, had, had been shown cold weather arriving, but that doesn't look as likely now. Um, actually, the latest weather models show a mild start to uh, next year. 
So we we uh, we might get lucky for another little while later. Okay. And as you say, with the price, the heat still there's no harm. Yeah, absolutely. Listen, always a pleasure to have you on the program, Alan. Happy Christmas to you, and thanks for all your contributions throughout the year. Many happy returns to you and your listeners. Take care. Good morning to you. Bye bye. That is Alan O'Reilly of uh, Carlo Weather. So a wet one is what we can expect uh, over the next few days. 1850-333-103. Just on antigen tests. Uh, hi, Patricia. I got a five test pack yesterday in Aldi for 11 euro. So people need to shop around. You can get antigen tests uh, cheaper. And then Ellen said, when people are complaining about the cost of antigen tests in this country, Ellen recently returned from uh, America. Antigen tests there cost 18, between 18 and 20 dollars. And that's for a two test kit. So they are expensive in the States. Uh, so where we're, when people are saying that three euro is expensive, that's really, really expensive. And then Anne, this is on Ralph Regal, who we spoke with about the stuff which has gone to Plantier and actually a number of people saying it's hard to believe that it is uh, 25 years this uh, week since that uh, lovely woman was uh, murdered uh, and said, listen to Ralph on the murder of Sophie Tuscan de Plantier. Surely with all of the modern science and the breakthroughs in forensic science and the breakthroughs in DNA, surely they should be able to solve the murder. Uh, in America, they solve murders all the time and they do it after many, many years. Well, that's what I, I did mention that there's a new review going on at the moment of whether it's going to be a full sc- they're going to go right back and start all over again. That's what they're looking at, trying to decide whether they'll do a, f- a full uh, cold case uh, review but you're right forensic science uh, certainly has uh, has improved so much since this day 25 years ago this week uh, when she was when Sophie was found uh, dead but at the time there was limited DNA in forensic science at the time they could just find nothing they couldn't find any match at all to anyone and it was the guard would say at the time that it was the forensic science they were waiting for that breakthrough and that was that what left what they felt left them down 1850 333 103 Bernie's taking your calls you can text her WhatsApp 0862 103 103 Now the greatest gift I think that you can instill in a child is a love of reading. It's one of the reasons that I love to give children books as presents in the hope that they will get so immersed in the story that you never want the book to end. Kieran Crowley is a children's writer from Mallow and he joins me this morning to discuss his festive offering this year which is called The Santa List. Good morning to you Kieran. Good morning. And you, you? and you I'm very well, thank you. You're welcome. This is your fifth book. How did you get into writing children's books? Well, um I started off I used to always be uh reading and writing when I was a child, but I never had much confidence in myself that I didn't think of writing as a, a possible career, so I didn't do much for many years. But then I started working in a video shop. I don't know if you remember back to those years. Yeah. 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 And so I used to get to see lots of films and I got interested in film as well as books. So I started trying to write film scripts. And I almost got one made, but that took years and there was no real end product to it. So I thought, like, I, I developed a love of stories. So I said, maybe I'll try uh, writing a book because I used to love telling stories, bedtime stories to my niece. And so I wrote a story for her and that was something she enjoyed and I sent it off to a publisher in Cork and luckily enough it got published and that started the journey for me. That Was that the, the column in the Lazarus Key? That's the one, yeah, yes. I yeah, I remember I remember interviewing you around that time, um, around that book. Um, and is there a huge market for children's books? 
There is. Um, there, it's, it's probably actually the, the biggest, biggest selling um, range of books are children's books. But um, it is a very crowded marketplace. You have a lot of celebrity authors. And when I, when I was a child going into bookshops, you know, there was a, a limited selection of a lot of Enid Blyton and Roald Dahl and, you know, The Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, those sorts of yeah. books. Whereas if you go in, in, into any of the bookshops now, like they, they have huge sections, you know, they have in, in age categories and different types of books and everything, which is brilliant for the children today. But um, it, is, it is a crowded marketplace, so it's kind of difficult to stand out. Yeah, but, but you need yeah. to, as I said in the introduction, you need to almost surround children with books, give them books. That It's the only way to encourage them to read. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, that's, and that's probably why I started reading. I mean, I, I teachers who kind of fostered a, a love of reading. And uh, I grew up in a house. My mum was a big reader. Mm. So I grew up in a house surrounded by books. And I think, if, you know, if your people are telling children to read, it's different from seeing it modelled, you know, so where they're actually sitting, you know, if they see an adult sitting around reading books themselves, they're more interested. Yeah, and in, you in, can, in, you and, and, and read to children. That's how it all starts. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah definitely. And, you know, I think for, for, I, for Irish kids, you know, to open a book and it's, and in their own minds, they can imagine these are, they can be their own friends, they can be themselves. I think there's something really, I think that will really encourage children to read, you know, books that are set in Ireland or books with children's Irish names. I mean, the, the main characters in, in your books, uh, in this book, centres around Ashleen and Joe. That's right, yes, and the, the local travel agent has, a, you know, the, the illustrations are done by a guy called James Lancet, and he's a, an illustration set inside the travel agency, and it has Visit Mallow written in the back, and yeah. a couple of references to, yeah. you know, Cork and Mallow in it. Yeah, I, spo- I yeah, spotted yeah. that. So, <laughs> yeah. I did indeed, yeah. So, Ashley and Joe are, are siblings who are constantly getting into mischief. We won't say they're bold. They're constantly getting into to yeah, mischief. mischief is a nice, nice yeah. story. Yeah, and then the, the strict babysitter arrives to try to sort them out. Yeah, so so they're, um, they're they've alienated every babysitter in town. People just find them, you know, they're constantly playing pranks on their babysitters, and they've they've all given up. So uh, the parents have to go away on a business trip. So they hire this um, Mrs. Groff from the Granite and Steel Babysitting Company, where all the babysitters are ex-army. So you know they're exceptionally strict. And when the children kind of play one prank too many on Mrs. Groff, she writes to Santa asking him to put them on the naughty list. Oh, the dreaded naughty list. Absolutely, yeah. So it's a complete utter disaster for them. So uh, they decide that they have to get back in Santa's good books. And they've only three days in which to do it. And it ends up with them stealing the naughty list kind of somewhat inadvertently. And then they, they face the, the risk of ruining Christmas for every child. So and it's kind of a race against time kind of fun adventure. And then the the adventure begins. Uh, exactly, uh, yeah. exactly. So, yeah, um, and you mentioned the illustrator. Uh, it is it is beautifully uh, illustrated. From an author's point of view, is 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 it, it's almost like seeing your book come to life, is it? It is. It's, it's actually amazing because, I mean, I, I do visit a lot of schools, but not so much, obviously, now with, with the, the COVID regulations. But one of the things that children always ask about is the art side of things, because the last few books I've had have been illustrated. And they, they imagine, which I probably imagined as well, is that you'd be sitting in the room with the artist and discussing it. But what actually happened is I just sent him off a, a one-page synopsis, never oh. actually spoke by phone or anything like that. And maybe a one or two-line uh, description of each character, and he brought them to life from that, which is amazing, yeah. because they're actually matched and exceeded my expectations. You know, he kind of captured exactly what I wanted, but added more to it as well, you know. Yeah, it's and the cover, the colour, the colour on the cover makes it pop out as well. So I imagine if you go into a bookshop, you'll spot Santa's list because the colouring uh, is, 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 is just, it's just beautiful. It really is good. What age it, group is it pitched at? It's kind of from, from seven years up to, to around 11. Okay. Um, you know, 
in around that age group. But you know, again, some some parents now have been looking up at like, getting nice feedback from parents. And some of them kind of spent time, like you mentioned earlier, reading the book together with their with their child. So you know, maybe if from around six, if you're reading it to them, and that that kind of involves them in the story, and they ask questions and you know things like that. So it's a nice fun time, time thing to be doing around Christmas time. And you know, I think for for the smaller children, as you say, wouldn't be able to read it themselves. Um, no, I think that's lovely to sit and do a chapter or two a night, and then it lets their imagination as well go on what's going to happen next, and then you yeah, pick, uh, yeah, and then pick it up the next night. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And then, then one or two parents have said the chapters are quite short, which, which helps as well, because if they do get asked for another chapter, it's not going to be, you know, children do like saying just one more page and things like that. You know? Yeah, it's like uh, one more book and you're going for the small, the shortest, the quickest one that you can, that you can find. We've all done that. We've all done that. And with the children, of course, breaking up for their school holidays uh, today, this would be a lovely book in the, the lead up to Christmas Day, because, they, they, you know, the next couple of days can really drag for children. Yeah, I mean, it is, and because it's, it's set in the run-up to Christmas, it's kind of like a nice anticipation. I always liked this one myself as a, as a child. I loved the, those days. You know, Christmas Eve was probably my favourite day because it's still, everything's still ahead. You were off school, the presents were coming, you know, you knew you were going to be eating selection boxes for the next week. So, And I think this kind of, this a book like this kind of adds the anticipation for Christmas, you know, kind of gets you into the Christmas spirit. And, and like you said, you know, <laughs> if parents are busy rushing around trying to get yeah. everything ready, it's it, you know, it's handy for the kids to be distracted by and these, reading. And these are the days the house the house house is full of the selection boxes and, and the tins <laughs> of roses. And, and as we mentioned earlier, you're not allowed to open anything because it's there for Christmas. You can't touch anything, and it's, just, <laughs> it's teasing on the kids. Can I say I was really touched at the the kind of the very end of the book? You include the two Santa letters from Ashleen and Joe. I thought Ashleen writing about, um, and I'll just read it. This was this was part of one of her wishes to uh, Santa. I would like if you could make it so that my parents don't have to work so hard uh, though I know they're not re- that, that's not really a present but maybe and maybe you can't do anything about it but they're always tired and we don't really get to have any fun family stuff anymore instead we get all these babysitters who are okay I suppose but it's not much fun having strangers in your house all the time I just thought you know there's, there's a lesson in there for all parents to be present with your children yeah, I mean, it is very difficult, you know, and, you know, every parent in the country would love to be spending more time with their children. Unfortunately, you know, we're kind of grown up in the times now where both parents have to work in, in many cases. So it is, it is a lot more difficult, and especially in current times, to, to juggle everything. But I think, yeah, that's one of the reasons that the children act out a bit in, this, in the stories, because they're probably looking for more attention, yeah, yeah, you know. So, exactly. And so Christmas is one bit, with a bit of time, but even if you're busy the rest of the year, most people are lucky enough to have a little bit of time off work at Christmas time, so they get to spend that mm. that time with their family, and so it's just you know, it's just a special time, no yeah. matter what you're doing. And folks, put the phones and the tablets down and engage, <laughs> engage with your children. All right, it's 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 gorgeous, and I take it as they as they say, available in all good bookshops. It is. It's all it's all of the the shops in Cork um, County and City. Yeah, so okay, it's, and it's still available. It's called the Santa List. Are you already working on the next book for next year? Are you on a bit of a uh, break? Uh, no, I, I finished I finished one there recently in the last couple of months. So you know that's gone out in submission now. So fingers crossed, I get a good response from publishers on that one. Okay, well done, well done to you, and uh, continued uh, good luck with your, with your books. They really are lovely, uh, Kieran, and you're helping that young generation to get him to, to to find that love of uh, reading. Happy Christmas to you, and uh, happy returns. And just, just thanks for joining well. us on the program. Uh, good morning to you. Bye bye. That is uh, Kieran Crowley, and the book is called The Santa. 
Data uh, List. 1850-333-103. Bernie is taking your calls. You can text her WhatsApp to 0862-103-103. It is Wednesday and that means Peter Dowdle will be joining us in the next hour. It's our final slot with Peter for the year. So if you've got any uh, questions for Peter, then he takes a break in January. He won't be back with us until February. But has anything gone wrong in the garden or with the plants indoors that you've got a question, you can give us a call or you can text or WhatsApp. By the way, thank you. I can see a lot of texts and WhatsApps coming in. Uh, people just wanting uh, to wish me and everybody and my family and everybody here in the programme a very happy and a peaceful uh, Christmas. And I really appreciate it. There's just uh, so many of them. Out there. I'd be here all day if I was to be call- if I was to start calling them out. But thank you. And I really appreciate them. And just to say, I have read them all. Uh, so I really do appreciate those texts. Uh, thank you very kindly. Obviously, I'll be off. I'm taking a break next week for uh, Christmas week. But myself and John Paul have been working on kind of some of the best of, some of the interview highlights that we've had throughout the year during 2021 here on Cork Today. And we've put together five highlight shows, one one that will they will be broadcast, one will be broadcast each day across next week, Monday to Friday, that's the 27th, 28th, 29th, 30th, right up to uh, New Year's Eve. Uh, the programmes will run at 10am every morning. Just a kind of a one-hour show with kind of the best bits, some of the interviews that stood out for us and that had meaning for us and uh, interviews that we felt people might like to want to hear again so keep a listen out and keep a look out for that across next week here on at C103 and also John Green with Where the Road uh, Takes Me he's put together some of his best shows from across uh, the year and you can listen weekdays from 6pm right across next week uh, as well for uh, some repeats of Where the Road Takes Me that fantastic one uh, with Brendan Boyer it's a two part that's going to be running on Monday and Tuesday of next week And what's really poignant about that particular interview was it was recorded just two weeks before Brendan Boyer passed away. So keep a listen out for Where the Road Takes Me and John's highlights during that week between Christmas and New Year where we don't know if we're coming or going and we don't know what day of the week it is. Marion has asked me to mention that Middleton GAA Bingo is taking place this evening, Wednesday. Now it normally happens on a Friday because Friday is Christmas Eve. They've decided to push it back so it's going to be on tonight with a new start time this evening for bingo at Middleton GAA 6.30. Reason for that is you have to be out by 8 o'clock because those those new guidelines and new restrictions are affecting the bingo as well. So half six to be finished by 8pm tonight. Uh, Marion says they have very strict COVID restriction rules in place which she says all of our players are pleased to adhere to and I think that's good you know and I know some people almost get apologetic saying we're very strict on the COVID rules but I think for people attending they like to know that there are strict rules and that everybody there is abiding by them so well done Marion and the rest of the gang at Middleton GAA Bingo which is on tonight Wednesday for this week instead of the normal Friday night. Now also into us there is a WhatsApp I want to deal with. Yeah, and I can see WhatsApp questions coming in for Peter. You can keep those coming, please. Uh, 0862103103. Now, this is to do with, I mentioned in the last hour about the Capuchin Day Centre and they were giving out vouchers uh, for people. And this prompted a listener to contact us about the purchase of a supermarket voucher that you'd give to somebody else. And this listener says, I want to give a supermarket voucher for somebody 
but unfortunately a family member has addiction issues so when I went to purchase the voucher I asked could you make sure that this voucher is only used for food and essentials and is not used for alcohol and unfortunately the supermarket said no they can't do that once you buy a supermarket voucher the person who has the voucher in their hand is entitled to anything that's on sale in the shop which includes alcohol and I'm assuming does it include cigarettes uh, as well such a pity says this texter because this texter reckons that a lot of people would be very happy to give a voucher if they knew that the family getting it could only use it for uh, food. And unless you could find a supermarket, and I can't even think of a supermarket that only stocks food because they all have alcohol, but I suppose it would be almost impossible to have separate vouchers for food. And then when you give a voucher... You give it with a good heart and a good spirit and you hope that what's purchased with it will benefit everybody in the family. But when you're living with somebody with addiction, that can be really, really tricky uh, indeed. But um, somebody's wondering, is there any is there any way around that? Has anybody come around that? The other thing you could do, you could get a hamper of items, a hamper of food items and give a hamper instead of the voucher. Maybe find out from the, the person that you're giving it to in the house, not the person suffering with the addiction, maybe find out what they need most this Christmas. And, you know, you have a couple of days left to do up a nice hamper because there's nothing better than receiving a hamper and particularly if it's a hamper of really, really nice things. Then Margaret was on to us from Tala wanting to know, has anybody used any of those mouse deterrent devices? You know, the ones that you plug in and they it seems that they emit some kind of a sound that obviously you or I or nobody else or any other animals, it's only rodents can hear it and it acts as a deterrent to say a mouse or a rat coming into a house. I have seen them. I don't know if, I've never used one so I don't know if they work or not. I know we had them here in the building at one stage but I I honestly, hand on heart, don't know if they work or not so we'll give a shout out to see if anybody knows that the mouse and I take it they work for rats as well the, the, the deterrents that you plug in that emit some kind of a noise that deters the rodents do they actually work is it worth Margaret investing in them or are they basically a waste of money if you can let us know 1850 but interesting Margaret that you mentioned about rodents because Rent-A-Kill have come out today on this Christmas week and are warning homes and businesses to be very alert about rodents, not just the festive period, but as as, in, as we're right in the middle of the winter months. Rentakill says that they now believe that their call-outs for rats and mice will rise sharply in the coming weeks. And if there is a downturn in the weather, if it gets anyway cold, they certainly will have some of their busiest weeks uh, ahead of them. Here in Cork, they do this every year. They talk about how many call-outs they had throughout the year. And we here in Cork, we accounted, we were the fourth highest number of call-outs for mice and uh, rats. But the county that was highest, that has the largest number of rats and mice is... Dublin. They came out on top. 15% of all calls to Rentacle came from the general Dublin area. Now Richard Faulkner actually is quoted in a lot of, a lot of the papers today. Richard, we would have spoken with, he works with uh, Rentacle and he says as the t- temperatures continue to drop during the winter period, many rodents then decide, ah, too cold out here, let's move indoors. And obviously they're moving indoors, not just for shelter to get away from the cold, but they're moving indoors in search of food. So they're advising homes and business o- owners you need to practice some simple steps which will help protect 
all of us from rodent activity, uh, such as being very careful with how we store our food, keeping your property nice and uh, tidy. And obviously, if you can find any cracks, because they need to get into the house, they need to get into your business, you need to seal up any uh, cracks in the premises or in the uh, household. But they also say during the festive season, there's a number of things we can all do. This one sort of surprised me. They advise that you should avoid using edible treats on your Christmas tree. You know the way some people hang up gingerbread men or chocolate coins or candy canes. Don't put anything like that up. And if you do have sweets or chocolates or the tin of biscuits open or anything like that, make sure that they're always sealed or they're always wrapped in plastic. And then after the big Christmas dinner that we all look forward to, clean up all of the leftovers, any of the food debris that might have spilt on the floor, any spillages, get rid of all of that because that becomes a potential food source for rodents and uh, insects. And they say uh, they say that people should always keep foodstuffs in metal or glass containers and you need to have tight fitting lids. That's what we all need to do. Okay, good advice as always from Rent Kill. Mary in Moore was on to say her 16 year old grand nephew, a young lad by the name of Callum, lives in Mallow. He's been fundraising for Cork Penny Dinners. He has now raised, and I don't know what age Callum is, but he's raised, raised over €300 Euros so far this year for the great work of, of Katrina Toomey and Cork Penny Dinners. And Callum's dad, Wesley, was a great fundraiser, but he sadly died last year. So young Callum decided in honour and in memory of his dad that he would carry on his dad's legacy. Isn't that, my God, what a great kid young Callum is. Well uh, done. And to raise over €300, Euro, that would be money that would be that Katrina Toomey will be thrilled to receive and will put to such, such good use. Well done, uh, Callum. John and Cove was on to say that the side gates are still open at St Coleman's Cemetery and the cars are still driving in. Now, the problem with the cars driving in because the side gates are open is that they're ploughing up the ground in the cemetery. But John says what's really annoying him is there are signs all over the cemetery telling people not to drive into the cemetery but people choose to completely ignore the signs and of course if the gates are open at all it's almost like it's an open invitation. No, we must be allowed to drive in. No, you're not. There are signs saying don't drive in to the cemetery. So please, if you're visiting Coleman's Cemetery, St. Coleman's Cemetery in Cove and, you know, over the next few days and across next week, Lots of people go, some people only go to the cemetery at Christmas, go to visit their loved ones' uh, graves. Uh, It's just really important that you abide by all the rules for everybody else's sake as well. Thank you for that, uh, John. Dermot in West Cork was on. He was reacting to the call I got. You know from the lady who contacted us, if I can see her name back, no, it wasn't Brian, Marie, Marie in Middleton, was on to us earlier to say she got a scam call from someone purporting to be from Aircom. So she listened to him for a few minutes and she said, for God's sake, this is a scam. And then she said to the person, I don't have an account with Aircom. And then the person on the other end of the line was getting really kind of shirty with her and told her her memory must be going and was kind of insulting to uh, Marie. So I'm assuming she hung up uh, straight away. Dermot in West Cork was listening to that and he reckons that scammers are starting to get more angry. And he says that's showing that they are being less successful, which he thinks is a really good thing. And he says a great tip to handle them. And I don't know where he got this from. And I haven't heard of this before, but this is this is a really good one. He says when somebody rings up purporting to be from, you know, it's usually one of the telephone providers. Or do they do it from the 
the electric companies as well, they probably do and they certainly do it letting on to be from the banks, is to say to the person on the phone, my service provider or my bank or whatever it is, gave me a code word because there's so many scams out there at the moment to ensure it is legitimate. Can you give me that code word please? And I guarantee you the person on the other end of the line will hang up fairly quickly. But Dermot, you are right because we would hear from so many people here will always share with us when they've when they're getting calls or texts or emails from people but particularly on the calls these scam people because they're not making enough money are getting getting quite angry with people and quite aggressive with people and I think they stupidly think that if they get aggressive with somebody that they might intimidate somebody into doing what they require you to do you know and maybe it maybe it is working or not I don't know but uh, Diarmuid reckons that he reckons it's a good sign because it's uh, proving that they are less successful but you need to be extremely careful whenever you pick up the phone to anybody nowadays unfortunately because there's so many scams uh, out there and then James in charge of this wasn't a scam but he went into his local post office and he's making the point that we're always encouraging certainly we are in this programme encouraging people to use their local post offices because we're trying to keep as many of the post office as open as possible and James in Charleville is one of those people he believes in the power of the post office and believes and knows how important it is you know for local communities to have their post office so he does his very best to do as much business as he can in his local post office so he duly went in he wanted to pay his car insurance now his car insurance is over 500 euro for this year so he need to purchase a postal order so that he could send it off for the car insurance and pay his car insurance for the year when he asked for the post order for 500 and so much odd uh, euro they said in the post office we need to see your driver's licence and I'm assuming it could also have probably been a passport photo ID uh, basically so James says oh why are you doing that I'm only buying a postal order and they said that they need to have photographic evidence of who the person uh, is and that it's a new order that's come in from HQ in uh, Dublin but James was quite taken aback by that now I don't know if he didn't have his driver's licence with him which is a real pain because then you got to go home or go back out to the car and get it and ah and listen in, in this of all weeks when everyone is busy you're trying to get in and get out as quickly as uh, possible so obviously it's a new directive come down from H- HQ but it's good to make other people aware of it if you're purchasing a postal order over 500 euro you need to bring your driver's licence or some kind of photographic ID and there's no point having to go with the people inside in the post office because unfortunately they don't make the rules and actually talking on people who don't make the rules we've had an email in from a mother in uh, Mallow to say her, her teenage children teenage daughters along with a friend were in town and they went into the local McDonald's to have something to eat and when they bought their food and when they went to sit down they were approached by a member of staff to say that you can't sit in here unless you've got somebody over the age of 18. Now initially they thought it was to do with the COVID passes and all these young 14 year olds all had their COVID passes. They've, they've all had their vaccine and they, the person said no unfortunately you have to have somebody over the age of uh, 18 with you. So they purchased their food. They had to go out and sit on a bench outside on the street and eat their food uh, instead and then who contacted us said she got on to McDonald's immediately and they said look it's nothing to do with us this is obviously a directive again coming down from head office and it's a child protection policy it's a new one on me I haven't heard of it now she's Nelly's endeavouring to get on to head office in Dublin and I know as soon as we got that email in I asked Bernie to get on to McDonald's to find out I'm assuming that it isn't just one local McDonald's I'm assuming all of the McDonald's branches has anybody else come across this young people are not allowed to sit in there and eat their food 
unless they have somebody over the age of 18. Now, initially, I was thinking, was it to do with, you know, the way you get young people, and God knows we all do this ourselves as uh, teenagers. They'll go in and they'll buy their food and then they'll sit around chatting for hours afterwards, taking up the seats. But it seemingly it's nothing at all to do with that because if it was to do with that, that could just be, as Nelly says in her email, if it was to do with that, you'd just ask them to leave as soon as they finish their food. But she's been told it's to do with child protection. Uh, and, you know, she makes the point, well, where's the child protection? Her, these three young teenagers were turfed out onto the street. Where's the child protection in that? You know, there was an adult who had gone shopping with them and was gone off somewhere else while they were doing their own bits and, you know, spending teenage time together as teenagers uh, do. Anyway, we got on to McDonald's to be told, wait for this, the media person isn't working this week. And then Bernie said, that's fine. Could I speak to somebody in customer service? And they said, sorry, nobody in customer service is available either. So we've asked Nelly to get back to us when McDonald's head office get back onto her because I really am interested to see what is their theory and what is their thinking on uh, this and why they have introduced this that if you're under the age you need to have somebody over the age of 18 you can't be in the restaurant as a group of children you know I I could see child protection if you were sent in a group of five year olds and saying go in there and have your McDonald's and I'll go shop and I'll come back for you in a half an hour I could fully understand that but I mean teenagers I, I just yeah so we're waiting to get back McDonald's to, to find out well we won't be able to get through to the media person until next week but we'll wait and see uh, what Nelly finds out from them but just to alert people again if you have teenagers who are heading out because I'm assuming it's across all of the McDonald's branches has anybody else come across that 1850 and then Jerry in Glanthorn is on to say he is expecting a parcel from a friend of his in Russia. His friend has sent the parcel via UPS, the courier uh, company. He's now been told he's going to have to, obviously UPS have contacted him to say pending your delivery is inbound but by the way there's a charge. He now has to pay €47.84 to the driver in order to receive the parcel which is a present from his friend in Russia. Jerry says he has absolutely no idea what's in the parcel because obviously it's a Christmas present from his friend and you know what strikes me Jerry? it mightn't even be worth €47.84 and he said he also has friends who got parcels from England and they had to pay as well and Jerry says if you refuse to pay they ship it back to Russia which obviously has a much higher uh, cost yeah and it's to do with their the, the customs charges if now, if you buy goods from outside the EU, which obviously now includes the United Kingdom, you have to pay customs charges. It's custom duty, exercise duty and VAT has to be paid to the revenue. I know if you get it through the post, for example, on post, collect the customs charges and then they pass it on to the Irish revenue. And it's the same with any of the courier companies. They'll be told how much has to go back to revenue. They collect the money and then it goes on to uh, revenue. And you're not the first person, Jerry, that I've heard of that has to pay on a present. And it seems, whatever about buying something, if Jerry had bought something from Russia, I'd say, fine, you know, you bought from a country that was outside the EU. But I think when it comes as a present, that doesn't sit well with me as to why we have to pay to receive a present and I know of people who've paid whatever it was the customs decided you needed to pay and they reckoned what was inside in the parcel wasn't (laughs) they paid more in the customs duty than what the actual item was at worth and it's it's frustrating and then it's embarrassing as well if you get back on to the person who very kindly sent you a gift 
that you're telling them I actually ended up to have to pay to receive the present that you have sent but I suppose it's a cautionary uh, tale for Jerry for you to warn your friend in Russia in future that if he is sending something maybe you can find out what the cost needs to be and tell him to keep it below a certain amount and then maybe you don't have to pay so much I'd get on to revenue for further details as to how much you're allowed you know how much somebody is allowed to spend and ship over before you'd actually get caught for the costs but it's a it's a bitter pill to swallow certainly on Christmas week and you're waiting there patiently for your present from Russia with love The C103 Cork Diary With Cork County Council where communities and businesses all across the county can get the support they need at corkcoco.ie And a reminder to you that a socially distant vigil is happening this evening outside Ona Onakura Centre in Middleton. It is to show solidarity with the Onakura Centre residents because this centre is being closed and the other service users in East Cork who need long stay are respite mental health uh, placements. Mark Cody will be completing a 24-hour triathlon. It's in aid of the Irish Cancer Society and he's doing it on the 2nd of January in Yall. The triathlon will be made up of, wait for this, a three-hour swim, followed by a 12-hour cycle and then he will do a nine-hour run. Can we wish Mark Cody the very best of luck and hope you raise lots and lots of money for the Irish Cancer Society. And Mallow Meals on Wheels are delivering throughout the Christmas season and they will deliver meals Christmas Day, St Stephen's Day and all the public and bank holidays. Their normal deliveries then will return on Tuesday, the 4th of January. C103. And just on scam calls, uh, Chris Kipro Donovan, who we've spoken with many times uh, in the past, particularly for his involvement with the wheelie boat in Formoy, says, Trish, I got a call yesterday from a man with an Asian sounding accent to tell me I owed 84 euro to my Argus account and it would have to be paid before I got my next order. So I told him, do you know what? Keep my next order for himself and sell it and pay off the account. He then said the arrears would increase by 84 euro a day. So I told him, well, you want to hurry up and sort it out then, wouldn't you? Then he started screaming at me. It's you owe me the money, not, not, it's you owe me the money, not me. I hung up at him. Happy Christmas to one and all. Uh, Chris, uh, and many happy returns. Yeah, I listen, I know lots of people who are fun with some of those scammers if you have the time and the inclination and the one thing I, I, I love when I hear of people um, I went through a run on getting calls as well and I was doing that I was just acting tom foolery with them uh, and I felt if I had time and I wasn't busy I'd, I'd keep them on the line as long as I could uh, in the hope then that it would, would stop them contacting somebody else and they had no hope in hell of getting any information out of me uh, for sure but yeah they seem to be getting rather nasty indeed. Now we've had a string of people contact us about those plug in mouse and rat deterrent things that emit the sound. Uh, Curl uh, says ultrasound mouse deterrent we found them next to useless. Oh is that our own is that is that no sorry that's Carl sorry Carl sorry I thought it was somebody internally here sending me a text found them next to uh, useless. Hi Patricia I heard a story of a rat coming up to the back door of a house and scratching at the door and it was the night before Storm Barra were wondering if the rat was looking for food and uh, shelter but that's one 
one rodent you don't want coming into your house for sure. Oh my God, the thought of a rat scratching at your door. Uh, hi, I have one of those plug-in deterrents in the kitchen and one in the attic as we have the little shrews coming into the attic every year. No shrew in the kitchen, but they still came back into the attic every winter despite the inter- deterrent in place, says Mrs Grinch. <laughs> but it seemed to have worked in the kitchen but didn't work in the attic. And then there was a number of calls to Bernie from people who were raving about them. John Imichestown says those devices are supposed to interfere with the nervous system of the rodent so they won't come near them so they do work. May in Mill Street said I've been using those devices I think they're fantastic. She had mice before, got the device put in and she hasn't seen a mouse in her house. <laughs> See what I did there? For the last eight years. Marion Chardville has one of those devices called Pest Clear. Has it six years? Working uh, fine. And then lo and behold, a very interesting gentleman by the name of Brendan in County Clare. He was actually involved in the invention of those devices. And he said when they tested them, they had rodents in a maze and they ran away. And obviously they couldn't get out of the maze, but they could run back and try to get away from it. And he said as they were testing it, they could clearly see that the rodents were running away from the sound. But, says Brendan, in their studies, they discovered after a while, the rodent got used to the sound of it. So he says there's quite a few patents out there or he has quite a few patents out on different things. But he said, unless you can get one that changes frequency, then they're not of much use. They're OK at the start, but then the mouse will get used to it. And and actually, we've he's an interesting man to talk to. We might try and catch up with him in the uh, new year. So maybe you just need to change. Now, can you change the frequency on it? Or do you need to buy a new one that will have a different frequency? But then we've got some people saying that they're in for a good few years. But maybe you got rid of the mice that were in the house and then anyone new is not going to go near it because it is a new uh, frequency. So thank you to a lot. To, so a kind of a mixed reaction there from people. Some saying they were great and, and others finding them absolutely useless, including Jerry in Newton Chandram. He didn't find them of any use at all. And a pair of ladies' reading glasses were lost around Foley's shop on Beecher Street in Mallow. If anyone's out and about or was out and about and found those reading glasses in the beach. Beecher Street area of Mallow we have the lady who lost them we have that lady's telephone number 1850-333-103 Bernie's taking your calls we are looking for your questions please for Peter who is going to join us next for our last gardening slot of the year and for our last gardening advice slot of the year Peter Dowdle uh, joins me Uh, good afternoon to you Peter 22nd of December, Trish. I hope there's no hard gardening questions. I hope everything goes easy on me now today. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Actually, and I want to start with the the Christmas cactus that we have that I've been speaking about for many years that are in the canteen here at work. And I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that it looked like this year they were having a bit of a break because there was no buds on it. Man, did I speak too soon. You should see them. There's one, it's just literally weighed down with the buds waiting to explode. That's the kind of the lovely fuchsia pink one and uh, the cerise pink one and the other one, the lighter pink one. Oh my God, the flowers on it are stunning, Peter. 
didn't I tell you that yourself and Prince Charles have that in common that you're talking to your plants? <laughs> yeah. So you you mentioned that they weren't flowering. They heard you and they yeah. said, "Well, we better perform here, or she's going to throw us out." So. The, my, my, my only bit of disappointment now is I was up there looking at it and talking to it this morning. Was I'm off next week, and I reckon all of the buds are really going to explode next week. I'm thinking of dagging into work just to get a photograph of it because it's just. I think it's going to be the best ever this year because there's no way. There just seems to be every single, I don't know what you call the branches on it, has has a bud. I've never seen it so laid, laid down with buds. It's fantastic. And fantastic. I, I would suggest not at least sneaking it home with you for Christmas, but the, 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 unfortunately that probably wouldn't work because the change of environment could lead to all the buds dropping. So don't leave well alone. Yeah, because we decided here many years ago when we realised it's it's on, a, it's on a bright window, up in the canteen, the two of them are beside each other and we leave them there all year round and they are extremely happy there uh, so we're, we're going to leave them uh, so so other people if your Christmas c- cactus is flowering or if it's not flowering yet a little bit of patience Ponsettius there's a number of people are on to us about Ponsettius bought a bit, I'll give you an example of one bought a beautiful Ponsettia in a supermarket got it home it was the centrepiece on, on the table woke up the following morning and the leaves had already started to drop off why do Ponsettias do that and why only some do that now, I did a, a piece recently for RSVP magazine. You'll see it in there. I think they're a December issue or certainly on RSVP online and it, about Ponsettias and how to maintain them. But as you know, Trish, I'm very, I'm very well able to give great advice on them. I'm not always expert at keeping them from year to year myself. But the problem is, unfortunately, when the leaves drop like this, the problem is very often, the damage is very often caused before you ever get them because they're very, very temperamental in terms of the environment that they're in. I mentioned there, if you bought home your Christmas cactus, the buds could well drop by the change of environment. It's the same with Ponsettias. They absolutely hate any type of a draft, right? So even the draft by bringing them from, let's say, a shop to a car could be enough. But it's normally not that. It's normally done before that, as I say. And be very, very careful where you buy them. So I see them in supermarkets very often stacked high, in in the in around the fresh fruit and veg and things like this, where you have heaters going and then you have refrigerators going and you have doors of the shop opening and closing, it couldn't be a worse environment. I'm afraid for them. Um, so you really want to get them somewhere where they've been in a kind of static environment, somewhere that you trust. Um, a good garden centre that has a good selection of indoor plants and they know what they're talking about in terms of their maintenance and then get it home, get the plastic off it immediately, even better if there's no plastic on it to start with, then you know that the leaves aren't going to drop. Uh, and Get it home, don't leave it near a, a window that open that will be opening or even a door that will be opening. Uh, like your Christmas cactus, a, a south-facing window ideal, uh, provided it's not one that, that would dra- allow drafts in. Uh, and also not too much in terms of temperature fluctuation. So next to a fireplace or, or, or a radiator where it gets very warm and then goes cold at night wouldn't be ideal either. Keep it kind of watered. You can water it when you know it's happy. It'll take quite a bit of water. But to start off with, or on the side of underwatering, um, just give it a small bit of water a few times a week. And again, this is how temperamental they are, Trish. Uh, this is why I'm not so successful with them. I don't have the patience. Um, they don't like water to be ice cold. So ideally, if you don't mind, a bit of lukewarm water for them. And that, that's what they'll like. But uh, but they just they can be tricky, I'm afraid. But mm. often, often the damage is done before you get them home. So make sure that where you're getting them is somewhere good. And you see, cause like there's, there's four or five questions all the same problem um, with you know somebody else saying when I when I purchased it in the supermarket it looked stunning 
how could it so quickly start to lose its flower? And that's exactly, or it leaves, that's exactly what it does. The damage was probably already yeah. done or it could be a, a where you've actually placed it as well. Okay. So and a lot of the leaves, a lot of the tr- leaves, sorry, just finishing on it, Trisha, a lot of the leaves you see might be kept on by the, pla- you know, the plastic kind of sleeves that they yeah, come in. Yeah, See, the, the, uh, that's supporting it, if you like. So as soon as you take that off, a lot of the leaves could just fall off immediately. So be careful where you're getting it. And they do look stunning. I mean, they, they can. Oh, I and, love them. And it's the red, the red and the white. If you get a red and a white one together, they really are beautiful yeah. uh, question for Peter please from Mary what is the best type of grass seed to plant on a grave planning on doing it next spring is there a specific type of grass that you should use for a grave well next spring is the right time so March is the right time to sow it so they're right on that one in terms of what what the, what grass to, to use you really just have three different mixes available number one is for a very what's called very uh, uh, high value ornamental uh, which is you're putting green golf course and things. So we wouldn't be using that by and large. Uh, number two mix, what's called a number two mix, which is a Department of Agriculture mix, is what 90% of lawns would be. They're, they're kind of normal, everyday lawns would use this mix. And so look for, for the number two lawn seed mix or any kind of multi-purpose mix. They'll all have that. Uh, they'll all be primarily made up of that num- number two recipe, if you like. And that's the one to use. It, it's the one that's used in 90%. The, the, the number three mix then tends to be the um, the ones for very shaded areas. So provided it's not incredibly shaded, it's a normal situation, uh, I would just go for any multi-purpose number two lawn mix. Okay. A listener is hoping to do a wild flower bank next year. Is there any preparation she needs to be doing come the start of spring after Christmas? A wild flower uh, bank? N- no, I would. Well, yes and no, I suppose. It depends because you have a couple of ways of, of, of establishing a wildflower bank. You could just let it go, like depending on what's growing there at the moment. Provided there's no bullies, if you like, like bindweed or knotweed or anything like that. You could just let it go and see what species emerge all on its own. And you might be amazed to see what does come up. Uh, if it if it's stopped if it's not being trimmed or sprayed or being cut back in any way, you might be amazed to see what species do come up. Failing that, if you do want to put down some fresh wildflower seed. The only preparation, and again, March would be the best month to do this, March and April. So the, the only preparation you would want to do, don't dream of fertilizing it or anything like that. Uh, they want very, very nutrient poor soil. So the only thing you would do is maybe remove any existing vegetation that's there over the next few months. So that it's going on to bare soil, uh, sow the seed. And the most important thing, particularly if it's a bank, uh, at that time of the year can get very, very dry. Believe it or not, doesn't feel like it today. Doesn't think we'll ever be dry again after today. But uh, do keep an eye on watering it at, at that time of the year after you put the seed on, and really that's all it needs. But as I say, you can also just stand back and do nothing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, listen, wants to know, she asked Peter, how can, do I get my orchids to flower, please? The depending on which orchid it is, I'm going to I'm going to presume, if you like, that it's Phalaenopsis, which is the moth orchid, which is what would be sold again in. As ninety percent of orchids sold in garden centres and supermarkets will be that, and they flower remarkably easily and for a very very long time. They flower for three or four months each bloom. So when it flowers, and when the flower is finished, you don't remove that flower stem down to ground level. You follow the flower stem down, and you see what's called a little node, which is like a little swelling. It nearly looks like a tiny little band aid on the stem. So just cut it back to that node. And then after about a month or two, start feeding it again with the good orchid feed or the emerald mist. Emerald mist is a very good houseplant feed. It's a foliar one, which means it's taken in through the leaves and it works very, very quickly. And that will promote more flowering on your orchid 
pretty pretty quickly over after a few weeks i would suggest um and then it, again it'll flower for a few months so if it hasn't flowered now for a while um a few months or more i would certainly start feeding it now move it into somewhere kind of bright and sunny start feeding it with the emerald mist which is a very easy to use one it's probably the easiest of all it's just it comes in a spray bottle it's irish made organic um spray it on the on the foliage of the orchid and that should promote more flowers relatively quickly okay and here's just a final one um and i don't know off the top of your head if you're going to be able to able to think of an answer to this but a listener says could you please ask peter would he recommend a good gardening book for a 12 year old boy who has developed an interest in gardening and i'd like to give him one for christmas I can obviously go in with, with a very blatant plug for my own book in gardening, gardening with Peter Dowdall, which is ten years ten years ago published now. But um, and I'm sure the twelve year old would love it. But I think probably more that um, I, uh, you're right. Off the top of my head, I can't think of one. But I know what DK. You know those publishing that publishing house, DK Dorling Kingsley or whatever it's called. I know they do some gardening books, and I remember as a child using some of them. And they're quite good, and they're, they're they are good actually. There was a lovely book as well, which was published during the year by, or maybe last year, by a teacher up in Port Leash, or there, in County Leash. Uh, and it's not quite a gardening book, but it would be very relevant to a twelve-year-old who's interested in gardening. It's called The Wildflower Child. Google it. It's a great book. It's not it's not about gardening as such, but it's about a young child who didn't feel he. Fitted in, if you like, with the local hurling team and all the rest of it, uh, and he developed an interest in gardening, and it's how the two worlds collided then. And it, it's a fabulous, fabulous book, not just for small children, but for all of us. Uh, so have a look for that, the Wildflower Child, um, and uh, failing that for a general book on gardening, uh, I would say off the top of my head, go into the DK, uh, you know the publishing people, yeah, talking yeah. about their website, and they'll have gardening books for children definitely. Okay, and is your book still available? Oh, I've no doubt it is. Yeah. I've no doubt it and is. it's called. I, I don't. Ha- I don't have it available, um, but I, I'm sure if you Google it, you'll find it. Yeah. And what's it called? It's called quite simply uh, "Gardening with Peter Dowd," and then the subtitle is "The Importance of the Natural World." There you go. Plug your own book. You always do that first. Listen, <laughs> it's been a pleasure as always. You've been fantastic throughout uh, the year, and we look forward to chatting to you in 2022. Hopefully a less challenging year, but hopefully those who, who have a newfound love of the gardening over the last couple of years will, will keep that love and keep that interest over the, the years to come. Okay, stay safe and have a happy Christmas. And you, Trish. Thanks a million. Bye, Thanks bye, bye, bye. God bless. That is uh, Peter Dowdle, the IrishGardener.com. We were talking about uh, rats and mice earlier. Oh, really get itchy thinking about it. Somebody says, Trish, I've got three feral cats calling to my door every day. I feed them. Guess what? I haven't had a mouse or a rat since they came uh, into my garden. They are the best deterrent ever. That's from Rena in Kanturk. And a North Cork listener says, Fish, on a lighter note, I've got rats living near me. They just happen to be two-legged ones. But thank you, Mary, sending in a text saying, Hi, Patricia. I have a Ponsettia since 2017. Keep it in a warm place since it's thriving. Happy Christmas to all. Many happy returns. That's where I leave you for today. Thanks to Bernie for producing. Talk to you tomorrow. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary. 
not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.